Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. John chapter 12 is where we are. John chapter 12. We dive back into this glorious gospel, and as we do, we come back to see Jesus. We left him in Ephraim. We left him after the raising of Lazarus. He departed for Ephraim because there were people that wanted to kill him, and so he had to leave immediately after he raised Lazarus from the dead. There was a warrant out for his arrest. Anybody that knew of his whereabouts was supposed to tell it to the religious leaders. They were going to arrest him. They were going to kill him. And he is a fugitive. He is a fugitive so much so that people are wondering, is he even going to come to the Passover? In John chapter 11, verse 55, it says that the Passover of the Jews is near. And verse 56 says they were seeking for Jesus and are saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Is he going to come at all to the feast? Is he even going to show up? Everybody knows that Jesus is a wanted man. But we know the end of the story. Yes, he is going to show up. This is going to be the Passover that he will ride in on a donkey. He will cleanse the temple. He'll take over and teach in the temple. He will eat his last supper with his disciples, institute communion, be tried, beaten, betrayed, mocked, nailed to a cross, and raised from the dead. John is going to jump from about six weeks away from the cross to six days away from the cross, from chapter 11 to chapter 12. In fact, Luke 17 through 19 fits perfectly in between John 11 and 12. Luke 17 and 19 fits perfectly in between John 11 and 12. But John's going to jump from six weeks removed from the cross when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead to six days removed from the cross, as you see in verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, six days before the Passover. So we jumped a little bit. We left Jesus about four to six weeks away from the cross last time. And now we're less than a week away from the cross here. And this is the last Sabbath. We are coming to a Sabbath day. This is Friday before the Sabbath. And this is the last Sabbath that Jesus is going to be alive for. The next Sabbath he will be in the tomb. I want you to note John chapter 1 through 11 deals with 33 years of Jesus' life, 33 years of an earthly ministry. But John chapter 12 through 21 deals with just over one week of material in Jesus' life. So we come to this back half of John's gospel, and we're going to start slowing down a little bit and savoring these powerful moments in the last week of the life of our Savior. So, the end of John chapter 11, Jesus is being pursued by religious leaders to kill him. And then six days after this account, in John chapter 12, Jesus is going to be killed. But in the middle of these two incredible, incredibly tense and dark moments, there's a party taking place. There's a party going on in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And we're invited this morning by John and by the Holy Spirit to enter into this party, to see the sights, to hear the sounds, to smell the different aromas that we will smell, and to leave changed by what we see. Let's read these verses together, and then I will ask God's blessing on our time. John chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper, and Martha was serving... But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of 
very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Father, these are magnificent verses and I I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see exactly why John is writing these verses. God, I pray that we would see the majesty and worth of Jesus in such a way that we would be like Mary and unable to contain our devotion for the Savior. We love him only because he first loved us and lavished love upon us. So may we do the same even this morning As we hear your word, may we lavish our love upon Jesus by giving a careful attention to this account. And may we leave affected. May we not leave these doors unaffected. Grow in us a greater love for Jesus. Fan the flame to a white-hot intensity so that the passion that we have for Jesus would match his worth, and his glory. We pray in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This account of Mary anointing Jesus with this perfume is in Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke records an account of a woman anointing the feet of Jesus and wiping her tears off of Jesus' feet with her hair. But specifically, Luke tells us that that was done in the house of a Pharisee, And John and Mark and Matthew all make this account, tell us that this account was given to us when Mary was in Simon the leper's house. So the account from Luke is a different account. It's almost identical in a lot of different ways, but it is not the same account. So Matthew, Mark, and John all record the same account. Luke records a different account of another woman doing very similarly what Mary's going to do here. But Matthew and Mark do not mention Jesus by name. They don't mention Judas by name, rather. They don't look at Judas specifically by name in their account. They just say the disciples were arguing against what Mary was doing. They don't mention Judas by name. Only John mentions Judas by name. I believe John is wanting us to see Judas clearly. And only John mentions that Judas is a thief. I believe that John does that because John is going to contrast for us Mary and Judas. I think John has this account here to contrast what Mary is doing with what Judas is doing. Remember, this entire gospel, you've studied 11 chapters of this gospel, and this gospel is all about faith, saving faith, and the fact that people can follow Jesus and believe in him and still not be saved. There is such a thing as false faith. 
And so John writes, as we have on our banners, these things are written so that you may believe in a true saving way. John's given us magnificent miracles, signs and wonders that Jesus has done to point to the fact that he is the son of God. He is the Messiah and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. But the problem is many people believed in Jesus, right? Many people followed him. Many people believed. And those people who followed him, most of those people were not genuinely saved. So as we come to the end of chapter 11 with the most magnificent sign that John has given to us of Jesus performing by raising Lazarus from the dead, I think that John is giving us a picture, an insight into what it looks like to have true saving faith. And so he's going to contrast two followers of Jesus, Mary and Judas. Both follow him, both believe in him, both have done many things for him. But here there's a contrast between what's being done in this moment at this party. For our purposes this morning, we're going to divide this section, this passage up into three parts. We're going to stare at Mary's devotion, which is in verse 3. We're going to stare at Judas's disdain, which is in verses 4 through 6. And then we'll see the Savior's defense in verses 7 to 8. And John's going to give us a little bit of an introduction and a conclusion to both of those. So verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus, Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. That, therefore, is important because it's telling us that Jesus is moving into danger. Six days before the Passover, and Jesus has to die this week of the Passover, he's going to move back just about two miles away from Jerusalem, back to the hornet's nest, so to speak. He knows that he is going to be killed. And remember, nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down. So he comes to Bethany where Lazarus was. Jesus had raised him from the dead. So because he's there and because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, they made him a supper. This is a a supper in honor of Jesus and what he had done. Remember, there wasn't much time for Lazarus and Mary and Martha to thank Jesus. Once he raised Lazarus from the dead, there was huge animosity and Jesus just left. So here Jesus comes back about six weeks after raising Lazarus from the dead And now we actually have a moment for Mary and Martha and Lazarus to say thank you. And they do so by giving him a party. Now Martha's doing what she normally does. She's serving. You remember Luke chapter 10, Martha's serving. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening. And and Jesus says, oh, Martha, Martha, you haven't chosen the best portion Mary did. But Martha does get a bad rap, and so I want to just encourage her in these moments. I don't think that as she's serving here, she's doing anything wrong. She's catering this meal, and she's serving. That word serving in the Greek is where we get the word deacon. It's diakonos. She's, she's a servant here, and deacons are people that we should esteem highly. So she's doing something that is worthy of recognition and not condemnation. But she's not serving in her own house. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, that she is serving this meal, this party. She's catering this party at Simon the leper's house. Now, Simon the leper, that's his title, but we can safely assume he's a leper no more because if he was a leper, he wouldn't be allowed to have a party in his house. Now, my guess is Simon the leper was healed by Jesus, and so he wanted to have a party to say thank you as well. So you have an ex-leper at the party. You have an ex-dead man at the party. This is a pretty awesome party. If I got an invitation to this party, I'm going to this party. And I'm asking these people, what is this like? What's it like to die? 
What's it like to know that you've got to do it again? What, what is that like? So this party is designed around Thanksgiving. It's not obviously designed to honor Simon or to honor Lazarus. It's designed to honor Jesus. It's designed around Thanksgiving and gratitude. And so Mary's Martha is serving. Lazarus is reclining at the table, as is Simon the leper. And Mark and Matthew tell us all of the disciples are there. Now, let's look at Mary's devotion. Mary's devotion. Mary then, verse 3, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Pound, that word in the Greek is litra, uh, where we get liter from. It's, uh, technically, it's 11 and a half ounces. So this bottle of perfume is almost uh, filled with the amount of a Coke can. Uh, think of like a Pepsi can, a, a 12-ounce little can. That's a lot of perfume. So she brings this pound, this pound of very costly perfume. The word perfume is the word for an oil. It's not a, a spray perfume. It's a very oily substance. It's pure, John tells us. That means it's undefiled. It's undiluted. It's not a little bit of concentrated perfume with a lot of water mixed in. It's all perfume. It's very precious. It's called nard, which is an herb grown in the high pasture lands of China and Tibet and India. So it doesn't just find its way into homes. You have to go up into those highlands. You have to get it. You have to bring it back down and you have to take it by camel to Israel. So that's why it's very, very costly. How costly is it? Well, in verse 5, Judas tells us that this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people. 300 denarii. One denarii is a day's wage. So 300 denarii is 300 days wages. And when you consider that on high holy days, on Sabbaths, you wouldn't work. They would work uh, six days a week, but they wouldn't work on the Sabbath. And then sometimes high holy days, they wouldn't work as well. This is about a year's worth of income. This is a year's worth of income fit into a tiny little Pepsi can. It's very, very expensive, very, very costly. And what Mary is doing is lavishing Jesus with her love. She is showing that Jesus is more valuable than a year's worth of income. Look at how lavish this love is. 300 days wages gone in one moment of lavish affection. Gone instantly. Think of what could have been bought with that, just like Judas did. But think of why Mary is doing this. Her brother is alive, and the only reason he's alive is because of the man that is sitting next to her that she's pouring this perfume on. This is her saying thank you. And by the way, if she does this to say thank you for raising my brother from the dead, how much more should we say thank you for raising us dead sinners from the dead? So she is saying that there's no way to quantify the worth of the Savior. He is beautiful. He is lovely. There's no way to calculate the cost of love. And the beauty is whenever we lavish our love upon Jesus as Mary does, Jesus will never reject it. No, don't do that. It's embarrassing. Don't. No, I don't need. He, he absolutely enjoys and allows and responds to it. In Matthew and Mark, they note that Mary anoints Jesus' head with this oil. But John says that she anointed his feet. Why does John zero in on the feet? 
what would be the dirtiest part of the human body, externally speaking, when you're walking around in sandals in a dirty, dusty environment in Jerusalem? It would be your feet. It would be the lowliest, dirtiest, the least part of you. And what would be the best part, externally speaking, of Mary? It would be her hair. Her hair would be beautiful in adornment, as Paul says. So what I believe Mary is doing here is saying that the least of Jesus is worthy of the best of me. My best that I have to offer, my hair that is beautiful and glorious, is, is absolutely unworthy to touch even the lowliest part of my Savior. His lowliest part is worthy of the best of us. The hair, the best that we have to offer is no match for the least of what Jesus has. Notice also, when she pours out this perfume, it fills the house. True devotion for the Savior can't be contained. When you love Jesus, it's going to be known. It's going to be felt. It's going to be expressed in such a way that you see it, that you know it. You know those people, right, that you, you meet or you see from a distance and you kind of wonder, are they Christians? There's just a, a fragrance about their life and the way that they come across. There's an aura about who they are that you look at and you see there's something different. They love somebody deeply. They love the Savior just the way that Mary loves the Savior. Now, the story should end there. It should end by everybody clapping and saying, Amen and Amen. Let's worship the Savior together. Oh, come, let us adore him. It's a song that works not just for Christmas, for every day of the year. They should have done that. But verse 4 says that Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, is going to speak. So we see Mary's devotion on display, and now we see Judas's disdain on display. F.F. Bruce says it this way, The shock of what they had seen, the disciples had seen, must have caused a brief embarrassed silence, which was broken by one voice giving expression to the sentiments of many. Matthew Mark tell us the other disciples are saying the same thing that Judas is saying. What is she doing? Why is she doing it? This is an extravagant waste. So Judas is going to speak. But before he does, verse 4, John tells us, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was intending to betray Jesus. Why was he intending to betray Jesus? We don't have a clear explanation for why. But I think we can piece together the implication of why Judas is going to betray Jesus. Judas began following Jesus, thinking that Jesus was offering the kingdom physically, in, the, in time and space, here and now, and with the kingdom, much authority, power, and riches. And so Judas said, I want authority, power, and riches. And so I'm going to sign up. I will follow you. I will do what I must do to get what I want. Now, Jesus never said, you're going to have the kingdom here and now. Judas assumed that. And when Jesus doesn't hold up his end of the bargain that he actually never even said... Judas is going to get very, very angry. By the way, this just happens in interpersonal relationships all the time, right? We assume somebody is going to do something, or we assume that when they said something, we assume it meant something. And then when they don't do what we thought they were supposed to do, we get very angry at them. And there's that moment where that person you're angry with goes, why are you angry? What did I do? Or what did I not do? Well, you promised that you were going to do this. When did I ever promise that? I don't know. Well, you have to ask, you have to clarify. So Judas 
thought that Jesus was going to give him power, authority, and riches. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross. If you want to follow me, you're not going to have a place to lay your head at night. If you're going to follow me, you are going to die. So I think that that's why he says, well, then you're useless to me. You've lied to me. You've betrayed me. And I'm going to have done with you. So he's intending to betray Jesus. In verse 5, he speaks. And by the way, these are the first recorded words that Judas ever says in a gospel. His first recorded words are, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? By the way, his last recorded words are, I have betrayed innocent blood. Judas is extremely close to Jesus, close enough to kiss him goodbye, to betray him. And he tells us, uh, he teaches us that you can walk extremely close to Jesus and still not have saving faith. You can walk very close to Jesus and not be saved. So he says, what is she doing? Why is she doing it? He has disdain for her. Mary is showing that Jesus is more valuable than a year's worth of income. And Judas is showing that Jesus is not that valuable. In fact, you know how valuable Judas thinks that Jesus is. He's worth 30 pieces of silver, and that's about four months worth of wages. That's all Jesus is worth. He's not worth a year's income. Mary's heart was filled with wonder and awe and gratitude and thankfulness. Judas's heart was filled with greed and selfishness. Mary's affections correspond to the Savior's worthiness. Judas's affections do not match the worth of Jesus. I think that's the main point of what John is trying to show us here. It's a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. When the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. And it's not beautiful when they do not. And if your affections don't match the worth of Jesus, you're going to look on others worshiping him rightly and you'll become angry just the way that Judas is angry here. You'll think they are foolish. So he has disdain. But his disdain is masked when he said this could have been given to the poor. The money could have been given to the poor. But John tells us, no, that's not true. Verse 6, it's not a true statement coming. It's not a true sentiment from his heart. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had used the money box he used to pilfer what was put into it. He used that money for himself. He just wanted money. He wanted riches. He wanted wealth. So we see Mary's devotion, Judas's disdain, and the Savior's defense. He speaks up. And he says, leave her alone. Now he's defending her from Judas in John, but from the other disciples in Matthew and Mark. Leave her alone. He's going to give three defenses in verses 7 and 8. Number one, he's going to say, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Number two, you always have the poor with me. And number three, you do not always have me. So he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's point number one. She can keep it for the day of my burial. The words in Matthew say, she did this to prepare me for my burial. And the words in Mark say, she has anointed my my body beforehand for burial. F.F. Bruce says, why should anyone object if the ointment which would otherwise have been used to anoint his dead body in due course was poured over him while he was alive and able to appreciate the love which prompted the action? Um, Commentators struggle. This is a very challenging verse, sentence, 
in the Greek. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The question is, what is the it? Is Jesus saying, leave her alone so that she can keep it, the perfume and the bottle. Don't take away the perfume. Don't take away the bottle. She has unknowingly kept those things for this precise moment. So leave her alone. Don't interrupt her. I personally don't think it means that. I don't think it means, I don't think the it there is perfume or bottle because the perfume was poured out and the bottle was broken. So the bottle's useless and the perfume's gone. Could it be that Jesus is saying, let her keep it, meaning this moment. Let her keep this moment and her love and her affections. Don't enter in and destroy this moment of love. Let her keep this devotion. Let her keep this affection. The day of my death is coming, and her love and her affection for me will keep her faith strong in that moment. This is a good moment, Mark says. She has done a good thing to me. So leave her alone. Let her have this moment. Either way, we know that Jesus is going to be buried, and he will be lavishly anointed by Joseph of Arimathea. He's going to come in and pour much oil onto Jesus. And this is prefiguring that. That's why Jesus says, she has anointed me beforehand for burial. The way that I'm going to be anointed when I'm buried, this is a prefiguring of that. She meant for this just to be an act of costly love and humble devotion. But just like Caiaphas in chapter 11, she is signaling far more than she even knew. And the fragrance of this act is going to extend far beyond this event itself. So Jesus says, leave her alone. She's anointed me for burial. Let her keep this moment. Number two, in verse eight, he says, you always have the poor with you. So he says to Judas, you always have the poor with you. Um, Don't think that by the 300 denarii, you're going to eradicate poverty. Now, my question is, is Jesus being kind and optimistic? Because Jesus knows that Judas is stealing this money. So is he saying, maybe you really did want to give to the poor? Or maybe he's being a little bit sarcastic in his comment, knowing that Judas wasn't really intending to give the money to the poor. Either way, I think D.A. Carson helps us here. He says, social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and adoration. Just doing to get things done, to meet needs, but no worship for the Savior. And that's what Judas desperately has here. He just desires money, whereas Mary wants the Savior. Judas is a greedy fellow. And I just want to remind us again, I don't think that the point of what John is writing here is to dive into a sermon on not being greedy. But I think we would miss an opportune moment to say we need to flee from a heart that loves money. Judas's heart loves money. And Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, We've brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it. If we have food and covering with these things, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich... Fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Because the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, is it wrong to be rich? No. Is it wrong to be wealthy? Not at all. But is it wrong to desire to be wealthy and to be greedy in heart? Paul would tell us it's a dangerous thing to love money. It's dangerous. It's dangerous, and we see it eating Judas alive here, and literally destruct its, its self-destruction because he is going to die by hanging himself. 
So leave her alone. She's done what she can before my burial. Give her this moment. Number two, you always have the poor with you. And number three, you do not always have me. Three defenses, three defense statements made by Jesus. You don't always have me. Mary is valuing Jesus. You don't always have me. It's about me in this moment. It's not about what you can do. It's about worshiping me. So we see Mary's devotion. We see Judas's disdain. And we see the Savior's defense. And then John gives us a little bit of a conclusion. Verse 9, 10, and 11 give us three different people groups here. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came not just for Jesus' sake, but also that they could see Lazarus. They're curious. There's people that are curious about following Jesus. They're wondering, what is this all about? You also have people in verse 10, the chief priests planning to put Lazarus to death also. Remember, Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Sadducees don't believe that there is life after death. So for, uh, for Lazarus to be alive after he died is a direct condemnation of their false belief. So they want him dead. If Lazarus is helping people come to believe in Jesus, then kill Lazarus. So we have those that want to seek after Jesus, curious about him. Those that want to kill Lazarus because they hate Jesus. But then it ends in verse 11. Because on account of many of him, the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This whole gospel is about belief. It's about faith. It's about genuine saving faith. Is your faith genuine or is your faith false? Now, I believe every single one of you has faith. I believe that. I don't think that you would be here if you didn't have some form of belief or faith or interest. The question is, what kind of faith do you have? And I think that's why John leaves this account by saying many were believing, but what kind of belief is it? Many were believing, but what kind of belief is it? And so my question to us this morning is, are we more like Judas or more like Mary? Are we more like Judas or more like Mary? Do we lavish love upon Jesus? How lavish is your love for Jesus? How much is Jesus worth to you? Do you really love him? We talked a little bit about this in Family Bible Hour, but I I think the point of what John's saying here, I think the point of this gospel, and I believe the point of the Bible If I were to pose this question to you, what is the defining character quality of genuine saving faith? How can you tell that faith is genuine versus false? How can you tell? What is the defining quality of genuine saving faith? I think some people would turn to works. I think some people would turn to what you do externally. These are the things I do for God that prove that my faith is real. I believe that this passage, and I believe the Bible teaches the defining quality. Do you want to know if your faith is real? Do you want to know with confident assurance that your faith is genuine? My question is, do you love Jesus? It's love. Do you really love him with deep, genuine affections for him? Now, you might say, wait a second, it's keeping his commandments. And I would say, yes, amen and amen. Fruit proves that you have love. Verses come to mind, John chapter 15 If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you are truly keeping his commandments, it's because you have a love for him that's motivating those command-keeping actions. Think of all the works that Judas did. Judas went out and preached the gospel when Jesus told him to do that. Judas baptized people. Judas cast out demons. 
Judas is one of those in Matthew chapter 7 who says, look at all the things that I did for you. Did we not teach in your name? Did we not baptize in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do miracles and healings and signs and wonders? And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, "Uh, those aren't the works I wanted. I want different works. He says, I never knew you. Knew. Remember word of intimacy. Remember Adam knew his wife Eve. I was never connected with you intimately. We didn't love each other. There wasn't love for me and you. It's not the works. You did a bunch of works, but it's not the works. It's love. It's love. You say, well, faith without works is dead, right? So it's works. I think works prove that you have love. Can people do the externals without the love? Absolutely. And people do that all the time. I believe we do that all the time. Have you ever tried... To produce works for Jesus. You say, okay, i got to do more for Jesus. i got to work for Jesus. And you do it because you're afraid of your standing before God. I don't know if God loves me, so I'm going to do some things so that he'll love me. You ever done that? I think we've all done that. Performance-based works. Uh, I know what he wants from me, and I just don't feel like he loves me right now, and so I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to do better things. I'm going to do bigger works for him so that he will love me. Where does that always end? That always ends in bitterness and anger. That always ends in bitterness and anger. Why? Because you can never love God enough and do enough things to earn his favor. So if you're trying to go that route and say, I have to do things in order for God to love me, how many things do you have to do? You have to be perfect. And I'm sorry, but none of us is perfect. That always ends in failure. It always ends in bitterness. God, your standard is too high. Never going to love me because I can never be good enough. Well, that's the point, by the way. Maybe you try to keep his laws so that things go well with you. Oh, I've done this so many times. I don't want to go through hardships. I don't want to go through trials. And the Bible says that if you obey the Lord, you will be blessed And so we twist that. I twist that into some sense of a spiritual karma, that if I obey God, bad things won't happen to me. How does that go? That always ends in anger as well. Excuse me. The first time that something bad happens in your life, hang on, God, we made a bargain. I'm being faithful to my obedience, and you're not holding up your end of the bargain. Now, we all know that's very unbiblical. A lot of really bad things happen to Job, and God says he's righteous, the most righteous man on the face of the earth. So we can do works in such a way that they're not being done from a heart that is motivated by extravagant affection and love for Jesus. It's about the heart. It's about love for him. And if you truly love Jesus, the works will naturally follow. That's why we do devotions in the morning. That's why we read our Bible. We read our Bible because we want to spend time with the one that we love. We pray because we want sweet communion with him. Let's think about the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? Work for God. Do things for God. Do the externals. No, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you do that right, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You'll do the externals. Think about the way that Jesus describes following him. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and despise the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and hate the other. It's language of love. It's not work for one or not work for this. It's language of sweet devotion, of intense affection. 
It's all about love. First Corinthians 16, verse 22. If anyone does not have love for Jesus, he's to be accursed. You will be condemned because you do not love Jesus. So I think this passage is telling us the defining character quality of a true disciple, of a genuine saving faith. Judas and Mary both had faith. Judas had enough faith to follow Jesus for three and a half years to do the things that Jesus told him to do, but his faith is proven to be false because he doesn't love the Savior. And that will work itself out externally. Mary, on the other hand, proves that she has great, intense love for Jesus. I think John would tell us, don't ever moderate your love for Jesus. Always let your affections for Jesus be lavish so they can match his worth. I think John would tell us, don't desire to be rich. Don't love money. Jesus is far better than anything money can buy. And we all know that a lot of money can buy a lot of really cool things. And Jesus is better than all of them. He's better than all of them. All that money can buy can ultimately keep you from Jesus. So make sure Jesus is your wealth and your supreme treasure. Cherish him. Cherish him. And if you do, your life can be an aroma and a blessing to others. If you simply humbly kneel down at the feet of Jesus and lavish love upon him, it will ricochet and echo and reverberate in the lives of others. They'll smell it. They'll feel it. They'll taste it. They'll see it. And so we need to be like Mary. Mark chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus gives an amazing promise. He says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the entire world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Why does Jesus say that? When I share the gospel, share the gospel this last week, talk with people. My sharing of the gospel does not go this way. Uh, You're a sinner. God is holy. Can't stand his presence because of your sin. God made a way for you to be reconciled. By Jesus dying, he lived your perfect life that you could never live. He died the death that you deserve for your sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead to offer you newness of life. Come follow him. And by the way, there was this woman named Mary, and she poured perfume on Jesus. Why does Jesus say, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Whenever the gospel is preached, what she did will be spoken of. What is he saying? I think he's saying two things. I think he's saying, number one, obviously what she's doing is prefiguring his death and his burial. So that's part of the gospel, right? The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. But I think once you understand that truth, you're going to live the way that she is living in this moment. I think what Jesus is saying when he says, whatever, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be spoken of in memory of her because Mary exemplifies the transforming effect of the gospel. If you really get the gospel, you're going to live this way. The transforming effect of the gospel is extravagant love and affection to the Savior. And this is the difference the gospel makes. This is the difference between Judas and Mary. So we can evaluate our own hearts. Have we been transformed by the gospel? Is there evidence of conversion in our life because of intense affection for Jesus? Do we love him? Extravagant affection for Jesus is the increasing experience of those who are converted. C.J. Mahaney says it this way, where there is a profession of faith without affection for the Savior. Profession without affection for the Savior. However immature in that expression, the genuine nature of that profession should be examined. 
So let's examine our hearts. It would be good to do that. I'm not at all trying to bring doubt or condemnation to those who are truly saved. In fact, as I share this, hopefully it will encourage your heart. Do you find yourself unresponsive in worship through song? Unaffected by the truth of God's word? Uninterested in preaching, in the preaching of God's word? Uninvolved in the local church? Unaware of your sin? If so, it would appear that you are unlike Mary and unconverted. I'm not arguing for the absence of sin. I'm not arguing that you need to be perfect. Please hear, I'm I'm arguing for the absence of affection, for devotion to Jesus. I'm arguing for the absence of love. If you don't have love for him, then I think that there's a reason to examine and question whether or not you are truly saved. Say, well, maybe I do. I don't really know if I have love for Jesus. Extravagant love for Jesus cannot be concealed. It's expressed in worship, in obedience, in serving, in involvement with the local church, in loving his bride, in giving, in witnessing, in sharing the gospel. It can't be concealed. This is why the Savior wants the story of Mary to be preached alongside the gospel because what Mary is doing exemplifies the transforming effect of the gospel. So my question is, are you similar to Mary? Are you similar to her? If you examine yourself and you find maybe that you're falsely assured, then can I plead with you now to be transformed by the gospel? There is one who loved you so much that he said, I would rather take the penalty and die in your place than let you perish for all of eternity. I I don't want you to die. I want you to live and be reconciled with me. And so he looked upon us in our helpless state and he said, I will live in their shoes. I will live a perfect holy life. And then I will go to the cross and I will be punished. I will experience, I will experience hell on the cross. I'll be punished on the cross as if I had lived every single sin that they have lived. So that the Father looks upon me as if I lived their sinful life and I'm treated as such. And the Father looks upon them those who had placed their trust in me as if they lived my perfect life and they're treated as such. Be transformed now by the grace and love of Jesus. Follow him and not your sin. What should have happened in that room? What should have happened when Mary broke that alabaster vial and poured out the perfume? Somebody should have spoken up. But instead of saying, what are you doing they should have said, well, please don't pour it all out. Can I please take just, just a, a tiny amount of that perfume? I want to pour out perfume as well. He raised your brother from the dead. He raised my sinful heart from the dead. And I want to worship him. He forgave me. And I want to worship him. Charles Spurgeon says this. Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, let me affectionately warn you, for it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Let us work to feel what an evil thing this is. Little love to our own dying Savior. Little joy in our precious Jesus. Little fellowship with the Beloved. Hold true remorse in your soul while you sorrow over your hardness of heart. But 
Don't stop at sorrow. Remember where you first received salvation and go at once. Go at once to the cross. There and only there can your spirit be woken up. No matter how hard or how insensible or how dead we may have become, let's go again. Yes, let's go again in all the rags and poverty and depravity of our natural condition. Let's clasp that cross. Let's look into those eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain that is filled with love. This, this will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith and the tenderness of our heart. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing, no, nothing at all puts life into men like a dying Savior. Father, we want to come before you now and we want our affections to match the intensity of your amazing grace and love for us. We want to be undone by the cross. We want to do what Charles Spurgeon has so eloquently encouraged us to do. We want to go at once to the cross. We want to go and clasp the cross. We want to look into your eyes that are staring at us with tenderness. We want to be undone as we see you suffering in our place. You are dying the death that we deserve. And we want to say thank you. We want to be undone. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Nothing gives affections to people like seeing the affections that Jesus has for them. So may we survey the wonderful cross together and may we be undone and declare your majesty, your glory, your beauty. And God, I pray even now as we sing that affections would grow and maybe for some in this room, affections for Jesus, true, genuine, saving faith would begin in the heart of of those that would say, he did this for me, he loves me. And I'm undone by his love, and I will follow him all the days of my life.